Hello everyone, welcome back to Haunted 518. This week, go ahead and crack it open. This week I'm drinking in in the spirit of the unexpected theme of today's episode, a UFO passion fruit. And it's just absolutely delicious. It really could go with like any situation. <laughs> as long as it's cold, it's a great choice. Um, the can is also like cotton candy pink and cotton candy blue. So it's just like a delight <laughs> to hold and and uh, indulge in. Um, so so yeah. So today's today I thought we would explore. I guess I should start off by saying today I thought we would explore in the Indian Lake area because um, just through my research, um, a few few couple things stuck stuck out to me. So I wanted to start off with some ghost stories, but then uh, my research took an unexpected turn and there were two pretty major, like totally spooky off the beaten track things that came up in Indian Lake that I personally have never heard anything about. Um, I live fairly close to it. It's it's my preferred Southern Adirondacks Lake destination, that whole area, um, Racket Lake, Long Lake in there. Um, excuse me. So, I'm very surprised by what I found, and obviously by the name of my alcohol today, you could probably surmise what uh, one of those topics is, which is UFO sightings. Um, and then also, I'm going to let this one be a little bit of a surprise. There was a, There's going to be um, a, an audio of someone telling their story about um, the Indian Lake Project. And I don't know if anyone's heard of that before, but I sure has never had. And it sounds pretty interesting. So, um, so yeah, so I thought we would actually start off with just a few ghost stories that I found, and then we can kind of move on from there. Um, in the daylight hours of Indian Lake, New York is your ordinary United States settlement, but the ghosts, but the ghost accounts conveyed by the locals are sufficient to make anybody think about making a stop in this place. There have been loads of happenings with things from another dimension. Doubters don't trust in the local spirit tales, but with so many spirits in, in Indian Lake, you have a reasonably fine chance of distinguishing one if you stay overnight there. Um, so I thought I'd, we'd start off with Jackson's log home and with a quote, I beheld what I wish never to be held, behold again. Um, and that sounds like he saw some scary shit. <laughs> the above quote is an excerpt from the article, The Haunted House, published by the Warrensburg News on February 29th, 1880. It speaks to the horror witnessed by its author, known only by the initials as F.A.M. On December 25th, 1879... A group of hunters, trappers, and guides were celebrating the holiday at Beriah Wilbur's Hotel in Indian Lake. The fierce winter wind howled outside, but inside the atmosphere was warm and convivial as the men sat around a roaring fire telling tales. At the stroke of midnight, the conversation turned to ghosts. Stor storyteller Old Print taunted young F.A.M. into staying the night at the reputed haunted log home on the Jackson property two miles away. Not willing to appear cowardly, he accepted the dare. 
Confronting the bitterly cold night, F.A.M. hiked through dense woods and huge snowdrifts that were challenge enough, but when he arrived at the deserted house, the true test of bravery began. Equipped with candles and matches from the hotel, he lit a tallow. The candle burned an eerie blue light, casting strange shadows on the walls. He gathered up the few pieces of wood strewn about the room and started a fire. That also blazed an unusual bluish glow. Poof! (laughs) Suddenly, all flames blew out. Ew. Not even an ember glowed from the hearth. The room seemed blacker than black. This was too much for the lad to bear. As he groped for the door, he felt a clammy face. Ew! And heard a ghostly groan, a wailing cry, and chains dragging over the roof of the house. This is disgusting. (laughs) His hair stood on end as he he broke into a cold sweat. He, He thought his pounding heart would beat out of his chest. Then he beheld what he wished never never to behold again. In the corner, a small phosphorus light grew bigger and brighter, and a thin vapor formed into the shape of an old man. The cloudy figure circled the room and stopped in front of the terrified lad. As the apparition opened its mouth to speak, a stream of fire came out of the earthen floor. More ungodly groans and howling. Ew. Once again, the room went black. F.A.M. ran from the horror-filled house and made it back to the hotel where all were fast asleep. He spent a sleepless night mulling over his vision. The next morning, Old Print made good on his bet, on his $5 bet. What a weird nickname, Old Print. Old Print made good on his $5 bet, for F.A.M. had experienced what the old storyteller himself had seen and heard at the Forsaken Haunt. And who is lingering at Jackson's Logs home? The consensus is that it's sold that it's old Sable, the legendary trapper who some say was murdered in the house in 1805 and up until 1880 was still setting his traps there. (laughs) Um, That's really scary and almost unbelievable. (laughs) But the clammy face part really, really, that's so terrible to feel something, much less that. The next one's called The Old Peddler. Benjamin Butler arrived in Indian Lake with his crew of Canadian lumberjacks in the mid-1800s and set up his lumber camp at the foot of Peaked Mountain. One day, a peculiar old peddler pulled into the camp sitting atop a dilapidated wagon. He was large and loathsome in appearance. His huge hands with pointy fingers and white disheveled hairs were gro- white disheveled hair were gross enough, but his meanest feature was his red piercing eyes that glowed from his bewhiskered coarse face. By trade, peddlers were solitary men, always on the move. Close relationships were rarely developed. Traveling alone with desirable articles and the money they had to carry on their person made them vulnerable and furtive. The old peddler admitted this attitude and made no eye contact with his potential customers, so the loggers felt he was hiding something and was out to rip them off. They found his appearance offensive and his suspicious manner even more so. Inevitably, the peddler was murdered. His body, alongside with his horse and wagon, were dumped in an old root cellar that was set ablaze to destroy any evidence. Years later, Stephen Lampfear bought the old lumber camp and built a house on the property. That's what the, that's when the stories of haunting began. Late at night, Lampsphere would hear someone enter the house and move about. Around midnight, footsteps were heard on the upper floor. Definite rapping was heard on a window pane, and a woman's wail emanated from the cellar. That is terrifying. Um, 
oh, when I picture these scenarios, so just standing in your house and you know you have a cellar door, you know you have a cellar, and you hear just you're alone and you hear a woman wailing. Nope, I, I can't. I would run out of that house so fast. Um, the scariest phenomenon of them all was the appearance of the unshorn peddler's face with long white hair trailing on the ground. Okay, this gets more terrifying. His specter was also seen riding behind his emaciated horse, and the racket made by the broken-down wagon was heard. By 1900, Bear Manning owned the estate, and Willet Randall was hired as a caretaker. He was duly warned of the strange goings-on. Randall was quick to discover the sources of the ghostly activity. A limb blowing against the roof was the culprit that caused the sound of tapping on the window. A sheep had wandered into the house and was walking around upstairs. <laughs> You know as they do an open end of a milk bottle facing the wind created the whale coming from the cellar randall had an explanation for all except one while entertaining guests his friend's wife remained out on the porch after a while she went running into the house screaming and shaking from fright she claimed to have seen the devil with a long white beard and blood red eyes his long bony fingers reached out to grab her the men tried to comfort her suggesting it was only her imagination but then but the woman was certain and randall's company was abruptly left for 37 years, Randall lived in the house and had forgotten that the previous owner, Lamp Fear, had told him that one June evening during a full moon, he had heard the rattling of the peddler's cart coming up the road. His ghost eventually showed up at the house. Yes, Randall had forgotten the story until one such June evening when he himself had an inexplicable rendezvous. To quote the elegant man directly from an interview printed in the Indian Lake Bulletin, I was sitting on the porch watching the deer feeding nearby and enjoying the chorus of crickets on the tree frog suddenly the frog was still the crickets were gone a deer raised her head ears thrown forward then with a snort bounded away silence brooded then without further warning i heard a rumbling sound of a running horse i listened it came closer there was no mistake about it this time Randall goes on to say how he heard the wagon wheels and the horse's hooves approaching, then the crack of a whip and shouted profanities. A scream was heard and then he saw an indistinct form of a bearded white driver. Randall, as, as Randall bolted from his chair in fright, he heard the words, watch out, I'm coming. Then silence and the ghost vanished into thin air. Despite this terror, Randall remained an unbeliever. <laughs> okay. That's hilarious. <laughs> Why would you not believe after that of all stories? Um, that's kind of crazy. This one um, it, I thought was pretty interesting. This next story I thought was pretty interesting because um, it talks about the settler of kind of how Indian Lake came to be just a smidge. So I was I thought that was interesting because I really hadn't looked into that. And this one's called uh, Sable, and I'm hopefully pronouncing that right that right s-a-b-a-e-l sabel sabel the town of indian lake is directly named first for directly named for its first settler sabel benedict a member of the abenaki indian tribe from canada in order to avoid fighting against the United States in the French and Indian War, Sabal left his tribe in 1762, thereby relinquishing his yearly stipend, set off through the wilderness, and settled on the Lonely Lake. At that time, the country was well stocked with moose, beaver, otter, and deer. 
Indian Lake remained largely undiscovered until the Adirondack Railroad linking Saratoga Springs to North Creek was built in 1871. This brought wealthy vacationers within 20 miles of Indian Lake and many began to venture to the town via horse-strong buckboard wagons, then farther into the beauty of its surrounding wilderness with professional guides. For weeks on end, Sabal would take his canoe, gun and traps, and go off alone hunting. He admitted that he was never afraid when he was alone, except sometimes he was afraid of, he was frightened of Chepi, or ghosts. So that's C-H-E-P-I, Chepi. Sabal raised one son and three daughters whose descendants are still citizens of the hamlet. The family's dirt floor wigwam was furnished with a few deer skins and the usual eating and cooking utensils. The simple home held no table, chair, or bed. Their custom was, their custom was to sit, eat, and sleep on the bare ground year-round. On the, yeah, on the bare ground year-round. Sabel claimed that he was the first to discover the iron mine at Keysville and sold the knowledge of it to a white man for a bushel of corn and a dollar in money. He spoke some English, was Catholic, and carried a string of rosary beads, which a priest gave him, and felt they possessed great power. A quote, Spose me out on the lake, wind blow hard, lake all too high for canoe, me drop one bead into lake, all calm and still in moment. Spose me in the woods... Thunder banks strike tree, me frayed. Hang these upon limb of tree. Thunder all go away, no hurt me. Suppose woods full of cheppy. Take these beads out, all cheppy, run away. Runway. Um, that's from Sable. Say a quote directly from Sable. After Sable passed, a ghost legend grew around his gentle spirit. The story goes that one day Sable left his home and went off into the woods on one of his usual forays. Dad turned into day turned into night and his wife's weight turned into worry. She went off onto the frozen expanse of Indian Lake to look for Sabal Sabal Sable, sorry, but her search was in vain. Her frozen body was found a few days later. Ultimately, her remains were buried on a small island in the lake. Legend says that on cold winter nights, if you listen closely, you can still hear Sabal calling out for his wife. Um, so that's, a, that's fascinating. Um, so the next thing that, so, so I wanted to, that was nice to start off with a few, uh, ghostly, ghostly lore that scared me more than, more than I thought they would. And yes, I am recording Home Alone again. Of course. <laughs> I don't know why I do this to myself. Um, uh, but the next thing, let's now delve into the two big things. The first of being the Indian Lake Project. I knew nothing about this at all, um, and it's absolutely fascinating. So it is um, told by uh, Nick Crowley. He's on YouTube, and and Nick, and his last name is uh, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y. He's got a pretty big following. This one's called the Indian Lake Project Mystery. and he writes, the Indian Lake Project has become of New- one of New York State's greatest and most mysterious urban legends. The story is a complicated web of government secrets with all- which all led to the disturbing theory as to what happened throughout this project. Deep in the heart of the Adirondack Mountains, in the heart of the Adirondack Mountains was a military base that may have performed illegal testing on live humans, and more specifically, children. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, play his his episode, the Indian Lake Project mystery, because um, 
<laughs> they think he does, excuse me, a great job. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. summer of 1997, a man was hiking alone deep in the heart of the Adirondack Mountains. While hiking along an unmarked and isolated trail, this man stubbed his toe on a half-buried metal container. Intrigued, the man began to dig around the container until he was eventually able to pry it up from the soil. How could he have known that the contents inside that box could have potentially revealed one of the darkest secrets that the U.S. government has ever kept. Now, growing up in New York State, I had become quite familiar with the urban legends that are kind of rooted in the area. And one in particular has captivated my attention for the past few years, and that being the Indian Lake Project. Now, this is a story that could be just that, a story. But if true, it could potentially be one of the most disturbing things that I've ever covered on this channel. Now going back to our story, this man opened up this metal container and what he found inside was shocking. 21 photos, 3 rolls of film, and a number of classified documents. And the contents of these photos and documents painted a disturbing picture of what may have happened in the area that this man was hiking. Now terrified, this man shut the box and took it home with him and he tried to forget about it. But after his death in 2002, the box was then passed on to his nephew, John. Now it became John's mission to discover the truth behind what his uncle had found in the woods that day. And in his pursuit to find the truth, he would go on to share his story with the internet. And he shared it in real time as he was discovering new things. Now the majority of this video is going to be me recapping John's findings and also sharing his story along the way. And because this is a story that developed in real time, parts of it are going to be confusing but by the end, I assure you that there will be a clear picture painted as to what may have happened in this Indian Lake project. Now, John's blog is where the story was told, with his first post explaining how he had come into contact and possession with the box. And from there, he went on to post two photos of the actual box itself. And he left a caption alongside this saying that he would scan the contents of the box and post as many of them as he could in the future. And sure enough, he followed through on his word. He posted two photos of what he claimed to show a military base that had once been stationed in Indian Lake. And he would go on to call this the Indian Lake Project Military Base. Very original name, I must say. Now, according to some of the documents that John had, this was supposedly a top-secret temporary military base that ran in the area from 1952 to 1955. The base was hidden deep in the woods of Indian Lake, New York. And just looking at a map of the area, I mean, this seems like the perfect place to hide a military base. It is in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and it's surrounded by woods on every side. So the idea that the military could have been hiding a base in the area honestly doesn't seem that far-fetched. But even if there was a secret military base there, why does it matter so much? What were they doing in this base that makes it so interesting and so terrifying? Well, based off of the documents and the photos that John had, he quickly became convinced that the Indian Lake Project was a set of experiments done on humans. And most disturbingly, 
These experiments seem to have been done primarily on children. But at this point, he wasn't sure of what these experiments actually were and what exactly they were testing in the first place. However, based off of the information that he had, he could tell that it was something sinister. Now, John later went on to show three photos, each depicting three individual children. Each photo contained the name that was potentially given to the child, along with a number and a strange symbol. These pictures were posted with the caption, Roger, Sam, and Sally are the quoted names, along with numbers, printed on the face of these photos. These are obviously not the children's real names, but assigned names. As I looked at the names and numbers the first time my uncle had showed them to me, I didn't quite grasp what it meant. I remember that my uncle had told me Roger was probably one child out of 837, based on his number, kept at the camp. His word kept struck me as both eerie and accurate. So at this point, things are getting really sketchy. I mean, these photos are clearly not normal. And with the knowledge that we have up until this point, one could assume that maybe these children were being held kind of like as guinea pigs. And if Roger really was one child out of 837, then this was clearly a huge experiment. Like that means there could have been upwards of 1,000 children in this remote area, in this remote military base, being tested on. And whether these kids were consenting to these experiments or not is still unclear, but it's very strange nonetheless. And that brings up the question, could a child really consent to human experimentation? I mean, in my opinion, I really don't think so. So yeah, things are sketchy, things are strange, and they're about to get a lot stranger. Another photo was posted with what appeared to be a blurred out face of a military member. This photo was posted with the caption, I think this photo is very telling and was included in the box for a reason. It shows two men, one civilian and one military. The civilian man, perhaps one of the scientists or project directors, is recognizable. The second man has purposely had his face obscured. It looks as if the photo is telling us that this civilian is important to the ILP while trying to protect the identity of the officer he is shown with. Could that officer be the man whose box it was? Was he trying to shed light on the subject without exposing himself? Maybe the civilian is a key figure in the tragic Indian Lake Project experiments. Look closely in between the two men, and you can see one of the ILP children. Now this leaves the mind to wander to very dark places as to the type of experiments that they were doing at this base. And honestly, John's posts up until this point have just left us with questions after questions after question with not much answers. But the potential breakthrough was coming. Now left out of these original posts was one piece of key evidence, the film rolls. Now lucky for us, John actually decided to develop some stills from these rolls of film. Though he apparently was never actually able to view the films in whole because he was afraid that it would damage them because there had been so much water damage in the box. And he didn't want to permanently ruin the little pieces of evidence that he actually had. But nonetheless, the stills provided from this film roll were still enough to kind of paint a picture as to what was happening there. Shown in one of the films was a group of four children stuck in cages as they receive a meal. And these kids appear to be there against their will. And the fact that they're locked in cages implies that they were clearly mistreated. But what for? I mean, what experiments would entail kids being locked up in cages? Like, where is this whole thing leading us? Now, another film was later analyzed, and again, some stills were posted from it. 
And this is kind of the point in our story where John begins to develop more of a theory. John writes, Above are three frames from the second of the three movie reels. It shows children listening to what I believe to be high-frequency sounds. Perhaps these sounds were used to stimulate programmed responses or used in conditioning as shown. These clips only show the controller's hands and never their face. The children all have a slightly apprehensive look on their face, yet they never look upset. I feel this work was done on the children's own level, perhaps as part of a game. Once the children's trust was built, the cornerstone of the conditioning process was in place. Okay, so again, I have questions. Why were these children listening to high-frequency sounds? And also, what programmed responses would they be trying to stimulate? Plus, the fact that John had just kind of jumped to these conclusions means the man is either crazy or maybe he knows more than he's saying. And it turns out, I think both were kind of true. John's next post laid out his theory in full detail. And as crazy as it sounds, it actually might be somewhat realistic. The post read, Project Artichoke was a CIA project that researched interrogation methods and arose from Project Bluebird in 1951. The project studied hypnosis, among other methods, to produce amnesia in subjects. Project Artichoke was an offensive program of mind control that gathered together the intelligence divisions of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and FBI. I believe the ILP, Indian Lake Project, was a part of Project Artichoke. The scope of the project was outlined in a memo dated January 1952 that stated, Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? Project Artichoke was renamed MKUltra in 1953 and was first brought to wide public attention by the U.S. Congress in the form of the Church Committee and a presidential commission known as the Rockefeller Commission. CIA documents suggest that the agency considered and explored uses of radiation for the purpose of mind control as part of MKUltra. Other early efforts focused on LSD, which appeared to have formed the majority of research as time went on. Experiments included dosing CIA employees, military personnel, other government agents, prostitutes, mental patients, and members of the general public with LSD to study their reaction, usually without the subject's knowledge. When Project Artichoke became MKUltra, the ILP's role was reduced and then eliminated. There are many declassified documents from the congressional hearings, none however mentioned very young children, 12 or younger, being used in MKUltra experiments. I think by then, the ILP was buried, both literally and figuratively. So in this post, John claims that the ILP may have actually been part of MKUltra's focus on mind control, and specifically the mind control of children. And for those of you who don't know, MKUltra is more than just some crazy conspiracy theory. This was a legitimate U.S. government program that ran from 1953 to 1973, and it was top secret until the year 1975. Throughout these years and throughout these experiments, the U.S. government would run tests on unwitting subjects in order to kind of test the effects of mind control. And by the program's end, over 150 tests were ran on live human beings. Some of these tests included psychedelic drugs, paralytics, and electroshock therapy. 
Now, as I mentioned before, the U.S. government did eventually come clean about these experiments, but John believes that the ILP was part of them, a part that the government tried to bury. I mean, experimenting on unwitting and unwilling adults is horrifying and terrible in so many ways. But you do that same thing to children, and it kind of takes it up a notch. So of course the government wouldn't want people to know that they had done this to little children. So after all these early posts, we finally had a legitimate theory as to what the contents of these box could have been for. But the idea was far from proven, and John knew it. To support his case, John decided to take a trip to the area where his uncle had found this container all those years ago. Now, while on this trip, John actually ended up discovering parts of a structure that used to stand there. And whatever these structures may be is really anyone's guess, but they have no business being out there in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Well, perhaps these structures were all that remains of the military base that may have once stood there. So the ball was really rolling on this case, and John's blog was killing it at the time. And within just a few weeks, it really seemed like John was inching closer to discovering and proving what had really happened in the ILP. But on October 26, 2005, the whole case took a dramatic turn. John updated his blog by saying, Since my last post, a lot of things have happened to me, which make me believe that posting any more items from the box would not be in my best interest. I have had numerous phone calls only to hear silence on the other end, as many as 20 times a day. My house was broken into and searched, but nothing was taken. The box and its contents had been securely hidden outside of my home. I did this shortly after the phone calls began. It is obvious to me that I hit a nerve when I mentioned the documents I have, and that I was considering perhaps posting them at some point. I am no longer going to post anything. I am done. I hope anyone who stumbles onto this site will read it from the beginning and continue to stay interested in this story. For those of you who had followed this blog, I am sorry, but my family and their peace of mind comes first. As disturbing as these photos and documents are, the last few days for me and my family have been even more so, which is why I am saying goodbye. So the fact that John was discussing perhaps one of the most secretive U.S. government programs ever clearly seemed to rub some people the wrong way. And it appeared that John was being intimidated to kind of keep his mouth shut. And with a story this big about the government, honestly, it makes sense that John would have a target on his back. But who these people actually were, and how far they were willing to take their harassment, was still unclear. But John was obviously fearing for him and his family's safety. So, honestly, that's respectable, and it makes sense why he would stop posting. And so with that, all updates stopped for many months, and it appeared that the ILP investigation was just kind of dead in the water. But John wasn't quite finished yet. Eight months later, he returned to his blog and stated that he had recently gotten a divorce, and now he could again fully focus his attention on the case. And that's because he no longer had to worry about his wife's safety. So tough scenes for John, if I'm going to be honest here. I mean, he took an L in his relationship, but he was back to posting about this incredibly interesting case, which is really good for us. Is that selfish? And John's commitment to the case appeared to be at an all-time high, as he even mentioned that he had moved to New York State to be closer to Indian Lake. Now, from here, John's blog began to get stranger and stranger. John's posts became more and more random, and they slowly started to make less and less sense. Like, I'm not even going to bother sharing a lot of what John had posted after this, because the man's was really on one. 
But through all this madness, John was actually able to post some key pieces to the story. This strange and disturbing picture was posted with the caption, This is not part of the metal box content I have in my possession. <coughs> However, I wanted to share with you a picture that I found on the web. I don't know the origin of this picture, but the date indicated with the picture is 1961. The typed paper on the center of the photo reads, Unidentified white female between the age 8 and 10 years old. Subject underwent six months of treatment using heavy doses of LSD, electroshock, and sensory deprivation. Experiments under codename MKUltra about early 60s. Subject's memory was erased, and her brain is that of a newborn baby. This is one of the few connections between MKUltra and children that I have found other than what I have. The MKUltra experiments are usually associated with adults, but there seems to be other confirmations to what my uncle discovered in the metal box near Indian Lake. So this photo seems to suggest that children were actually experimented on as part of MKUltra, meaning that the ILP theory could actually be true. I mean, it certainly doesn't prove his theory, but it also doesn't hurt it nonetheless. But what I find most disturbing about this photo and the caption along with it is the fact that it shows the horrific nature of what these experiments could have really been like. I mean, they fried this poor girl's brain until she was basically brain dead. And if the ILP was truly a thing, then you know this stuff was happening all the time there. I mean, that's really messed up and really disturbing in so many ways, obviously. Now after this, John posted stills from the final film roles that he had in his possession. One of the films I have shows several interior and exterior clips of the military base that was home to the Indian Lake Project. In these few still frames, you can see that the base was equipped with the means to house several children. I also have pictures of a bed, see October 7th, 2005, not a cot as shown in the film perhaps suggesting that there could have been different areas to deal with the different stages of the child's life inside the base. And this was the last that John had mentioned the films he had, which is a little bit upsetting that he was never actually able to post them or supposedly even view them in the first place. And I think if he were actually able to have posted these films, then it would have been huge for the case. But John did end up posting a video on his blog just not of any of the films. The video was taken in the woods near Indian Lake by John himself and shows a broken down shack of some sort that he believes to have been part of the ILP. Now, many people viewed this video as a huge revelation for the case because it proved that people were in fact in the woods in this remote area. And the fact that it's a structure could prove that people were actually living there. But this video ended up being nothing compared to what John would post next. The post reads as follows. If any of you are fans of the show Lost, this should look eerily familiar. While I was in the woods back in November, I found an underground complex. It is what I believe to be the heart of the Indian Lake Project base. This was probably where the children were housed and the MK Ultra type of experiments were conducted. I have been holding off posting this picture for a while because I wanted the chance to fully explore the structure before anyone sealed it shut. I have explored it a total of four times and have drawn a map to the best of my abilities of the interior rooms, halls, etc. This is not the main entrance into the complex, but it was the first and only other one that I had found. I will post the map and the interior pictures in the future, but I just wanted all of you to know that there have been some very interesting developments 
and give you a little taste of what I've been really up to. I'm sorry I did not share this sooner. There have been several times that I have been afraid since my uncle gave me the metal box, but going down those stairs with only a flashlight was without a doubt the scariest thing that I had ever done. Now John claims to have found this entrance with a metal detector, and he fully believes that this underground base is where all these experiments were conducted. This was obviously a huge revelation for the case, but from here, things really started to go downhill. It was clear that John was becoming very paranoid with all this work that he had been doing, and honestly, rightfully so. But all this paranoia finally seemed to have made John start to unravel. He claimed that a van was following his every movement, and that hunters had followed him into the woods with guns, despite the fact that it wasn't even hunting season. He even posted a photo of a helicopter at one point and claimed that it was spying on him. Now, during this time of paranoia, John also posted this photo from the woods. And honestly, this is just random to begin with, and it doesn't really prove or help his case in any way. But worst of all, it was later discovered that this is a stock photo, meaning that John himself didn't take it and that he had lied about taking it himself. He also posted a photo of a dead bird that he had found outside his house. And he said, either a bird died in front of my house or someone put it there for intimidation. But I mean, it's just a dead bird. Like not the prettiest sight, but I mean, come on dude, that is just nature. And to make matters worse, this photo of the dead bird was apparently also a stock photo. It seemed that either John had gotten lazy with his lies up until this point or he had just kind of lost his mind. And after multiple updates and paranoid postings, five years had gone by without any forward movement to this case. For whatever reason, John's postings had become extremely infrequent, and his post really didn't push the case forward anymore. And in February of 2003, John posted his final messages to the blog. One read, Thank you for your interest concerns and kind words of support over the past several years and the other read i would begin posting updates to the new indian lake project twitter account soon please follow at indian lake project to stay connected to the latest information those updates never came only one tweet was ever posted and the blog was never updated now if you were to believe john's story about his home invasion his chilling phone calls and the fact that he was followed then you might believe that something sinister may have happened to John. Perhaps he was on the verge of revealing some huge information about the case, and he was silenced before he could do it. I mean, you had a man who is that obsessed with this case, and he just randomly stops posting for no apparent reason. I mean, do you really think he could have just walked away from his work? I don't know, it just seems so strange to me that a man so obsessed could just... stop. So for those reasons, if John's story was actually true, then I believe maybe he was intimidated to stop posting. Or maybe he was even taken out. I mean, it's such a terrifying thought. But again, it all hinges on the idea of whether or not this was real or not. Because at the end of the day, this all could have just been a hoax or a story. And maybe John just ran out of materials. And quite honestly, I have my suspicions. Like for starters, let's talk about the original story. It seems incredibly unlikely that someone would just happen to stumble on a half-buried box in the middle of absolutely nowhere, not near any marked trails whatsoever. Like, the chances of him actually stumbling over this box, they gotta be one in a billion. Plus, if he was really just hiking, then why was he so far off any other trail? 
Why would you do that if you're alone too? Like, first of all, buddy system. God, I've become my mother. And also, if the information in this box was so top secret and so important and so damning to the United States government, why wasn't it just burned? I mean, think about how easily they could have just burned all this information and it would have been done with and they never would have had to worry about it. And the structures that John found in the woods are sketchy too, because first of all, no one else has been able to find them. And also, if this really was a top secret government program, they would have destroyed the entire structure. They would have left no trace for certain. Like, why would they even risk it? Like, I get it's an isolated area, but why would they run the risk of anyone finding that out? Like, it just doesn't really make sense. And also, why wouldn't they have sealed that damn bunker up? I mean, potentially that was the most damning part of all of this. They could have just welded the thing shut and they would have been fine. Or maybe buried it a little more. It just doesn't really make sense. Like, the government would not just risk this stuff by just leaving it out, you know? And if they did, shit, man. That's, I mean, that is not great work on their part. And I'll be honest, I look at some of these pictures and they don't necessarily look real. Like, it's almost like these ones have sort of a filter over them or something. I, I don't know, they just look a little off to me. But then again, I'm no expert. And not to mention, they all have differences in their wear and tear. I mean, if they were all locked in the same box for all these years, and they all received water damage, like he said, then wouldn't there be more consistency between the damage that they received? I mean, at least that's what I would assume, but clearly there are differences between most of the photos. And then there's the fact that John used stock photos in his blog posts, and that he had tried to pass them off as his own. I mean, are you guys kind of seeing the red flags here? And that also includes the fact that none of the documents or films were ever posted on his blog. Like, I get why he had some reason to keep those a secret, but the fact that he never showed us them really doesn't help his case at all. So do all these red flags really disprove the Indian Lake Project theory? Well, ultimately, that's left for you to decide for yourself. I mean, personally, I'm skeptical about the situation, but I'm still intrigued. I mean, up until this point, there's been no evidence that completely proves the theory or completely disproves the theory. So for that reason, I'm kind of keeping an open mind about it. Now, there's been a few more bits of terrifying information that I had to include somewhere in here. So I'm just going to kind of throw them at the end, and they might actually help the case for the Indian Lake Project. A key piece of evidence that I discovered afterwards was the fact that in the general area that the Indian Lake Project would have been, was an orphanage. So perhaps this is where this base was getting all these children from, and maybe that's why they never got caught, because they didn't have to kidnap them or steal them from somewhere. They had a steady supply of them right at this orphanage, which that adds a whole nother dark layer to an already dark situation. But it does kind of tie things together if this project was actually real. Now this last bit of information may be unrelated, but it's one of those things that I gotta talk about. In the span of about two years in John's investigation, three separate people had gone into the woods near Indian Lake and they all disappeared. And these people literally vanished without a trace. And it got to the point that local officials were starting to call the area the Indian Lake Triangle. And as far as I'm concerned, the three men were never found. Now this definitely adds to the creepiness of the area and it might point to the fact that maybe these three men discovered something out in the woods that they weren't supposed to see. Maybe something related to the Indian Lake Project. And this honestly just makes me realize how much danger John might have been in when he was out there in the woods. At the end of the day, whether John was telling the truth or not, he still told an incredible story. And honestly, this urban legend is one that I will probably never forget. 
Maybe someday John will post again and finish his research into the case that once consumed his life. Or perhaps he's already satisfied with the story he's told. Either way, I hope the man's is still alive because I'm starting to get a little worried now. Hashtag rip John in the chat. While most of the tasks were ethical by any standards, some were unethical, not only by today's standards, but by the standards of the time in which they were conducted. So welcome back. <laughs> that was fascinating. I knew pretty much nothing about any of that and I'm very surprised actually that in all my time in the Adirondacks and living just south of it and all the conversations I've ever had that's never come up considering it definitely seems to be the most notorious lore and actually I don't even think it's on Atlas Obscura so um I might add that. I would assume I'd want to trek there first to just see if I could find the location of those things. But um, but that is fascinating to, to think about all of that happening kind of like in our backyard. Um, so on that fascinating note, I thought we would head over to a topic I never thought I would talk about on Haunted 518. It just never crossed my mind, which is UFO sightings. But when I started digging into the Indian Lake area, originally I had planned on adding Indian Lake to... Um, a separate uh, or a, to a group episode with some other places directly in that area but I just so, sort of found more than I was expecting to so I thought it would be fun to dive into it today um, and just like my the title of my drink the name of my drink UFO that's what we'll be talking about next and um, I don't know I'm kind of indecisive on them I just don't really think about them enough there's a few films and stories and documentaries and x y and z that i've seen that absolutely fascinate me but i just it just doesn't really cross my mind much um if you think strongly about it please write us in i would love to hear back from any listeners about um, your opinions on ufos in the sparsely populated Adirondack North Country of New York State, various campers and residents were treated to the Adirondack Formation of Lights. On August 8th um, in 2000, at about 10 p.m., Mabel was enjoying the clear night at their Adirondack camp at Long Lake. Suddenly, she saw a rectangular white light hovering in the valley between Buck Mountain and the island across from their position. Mabel yelled to her adult son, Tom, to come see. Excuse me. Together they watched as more lights came on, hovered, went out, and then winked back on again. Mabel and her son called several local friends to come out and watch the lights. Tom said, says at one point they watched six lights wink on sequentially from left to right. Three lights were followed by another formation of six rectangular lights. The light, later the lights made a V formation of lights hovering silently above the tree line. Tom says that after about 45 minutes of watching these lights come and go, those watching were beginning to get a bit spooked and were becoming frightened. Meanwhile, about 16 miles to the southeast of Long Lake in an encampment on, the in on Indian Lake, another group of campers were making similar observations. Bill tells us, it had been dark about a half hour. We were sitting around a campfire talking. One of Bill's friends called the group's attentions to eight, attention to eight bright lights in the western sky. 
At first, the group of campers laughed the lights off as nothing special, probably just aircraft landing lights. The thing that made everyone realize that the lights weren't from around here was the odd fact that they were just hanging there in the sky. Occasionally, the lights disappeared, then reappeared somewhere else in the formation of lights. Naturally, the longer the sighting went on, various folks in that viewing party began to get frightened as well. In a comment about the brightness of the lights, one of the campers remarked that the lights were as bright as a welding arc. Finally, after a long while, the formation of lights seemed to be getting fainter, suggesting that perhaps they were moving further west until they faded. Bill says that he later mentioned the, the sighting to an uncle who lives at Indian Lake. The uncle said that many other folks around the lake had seen the formation as well. They all wondered if perhaps it was some kind of experiment the folks at Rome Air Force were doing, Rome Air Force Base were doing, about 65 miles to the west in another lakeside camp in Redfield, New York. Peggy was on the back porch when she saw a string of five to nine lights flying Five to nine lights flying silently in a horizontal formation. She called to her husband, Frank, and the two watched the formation of lights in awe. Peggy says that some of the bright lights seemed to be a bit amber while others were reddish. They were flying straight towards us when all of a sudden, when all of them turned abruptly. It was as if they picked up speed because suddenly the lights were gone. Peggy and Frank tell us we have lived in Redfield all of our lives. In 45 years, they had never seen any regional 10th Mountain Division helicopters flying at night. So that's kind of fascinating. That's the Adirondack formation of lights, if you look that up. And then there's a really cool website, ufohunters.com. And basically, you can just go on a interactive map and just see where things have been um where sightings first-hand accounts have just been submitted but the the map is so helpful and it has little ufos to mark the spot but you can zoom in or zoom out um and there's way more in just the middle to lower like from from lake champlain over to like <laughs> watertown i guess and then down to like just like George, there's a lot more than I would have ever expected. Um, so I wanted to talk about two of them, and they're just logged first-hand accounts. And this is um, cited on Friday, Friday, March 31st, 1995. Reported on Friday, March 1st, 1995. Shape sphere, sphere duration undisclosed. This was an incident that happened about 10 years ago or so. The the author's name is M U F O on Mufon. My brother and I were camping up in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. We don't remember the exact location now, but it was probably near the Indian Lake, Faro Lake areas. It was around 11 p.m. We had eaten dinner and were standing around the campfire. We were camped on a peninsula on the lake. It was a clear, calm night. We then noticed a light coming over the trees, treetops in the distance, probably a mile or so away. We continued to watch it because we did not know that it was a plain or know what it was, a plane, a star, etc. However, as we watched the light, it came lower and closer to us. Eventually, it was just over the tree line and it had reached the edge of the lake. It was simply a small white light, approximately the size of a basketball or so, I would judge. Silent. When, when it was silent, when it reached the edge of the water, it just stopped and to, and to my eyes blinked away and it was gone. My brother claims it was shot up at an angle and a flash into the sky. I did not see that. I had just, just that it blinked away. That was the end of the incident. <laughs> a basketball-sized UFO, though. <laughs> um, 
And this is another one close to Indian Lake on Rock Lake. And it was sighted on Sunday, August 28th, 2016. And it was reported on Sunday, March 26th of 2017. Um, shape, it says identical to stars. Duration 20 to 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes. I was camping at Rock Lake at the campsite where the water launch is located. I was cooking a meal and had been noting the brighter stars in the sky. I could discern three or four stars that looked especially bright. Believing they were stars, I carried on with my meal and, and they remained in the sky. After eating about 15 minutes, I began stargazing and once again paid a lot of attention to the brighter stars. After 10 minutes of staring, one of the brighter stars that had been idle began to move. Amazed, I watched as it began to zigzag around in the sky, change directional paths at angles as low as 22 degrees. After about one to two minutes of zigzagging, it slowed its pace and the light grew dimmer and dimmer until finally disappearing. Obviously, we do not have the aircraft. Obviously, we do not have aircraft that can perform these maneuvers or ability to hover silently. Even aside from that, the dimming of the light would indicate that it was traveling up and out. The planes in the area all can be followed to the horizon before disappearing beyond tree lines. This disappeared in the middle of the sky. It would not be a drone. A pilot would slowly dim its lights out and and dim its dim its lights out with it not being anywhere near enough to land. After the first one, I noticed another zigzagging star, less bright. I was not able to follow its full path because I got spooked by an animal. <laughs> and decided to go huddle in my tent. The following night, I convinced my partner who was sleeping the first night to watch for UFOs. To our amazement, the same exact events occurred as the first night. We have experienced other strange phenomena in this area and we can, that we cannot debunk, and because of these sightings, I would, wouldn't find it shocking for it at all to be extraterrestrial in nature. Also, date's not accurate. These events, these events were within that week, though. Um, so that's kind of fascinating. Neither of those is directly a UFO actual sighting. <laughs> but this other one is the same thing as the first one. And, um, this one is on September 5th in 2018 reported, occurred on September 5th, 2018 and reported on September 6th, 2018. Um, and it says Indian Lake is the location duration one hour. I am posting this from my friend who lives just across the way from me. She does not have access to a computer. <laughs> we are in a, we are very rural in the mountains and late Last night, her and her two neighbors witnessed a large glowing orange ball in the night sky. I myself saw the same thing, except it was at 1 a.m. when I saw it. She said her dogs had been acting strange and howling and barking all night, which is unusual as they are older dogs and rarely bark. She said it flashed in the sky and pulsated. She is very shook up by this. I told her I saw the same thing and not to worry, but she said the night prior she heard strange sounds outside her window all night, like humming and then clicking. Ew. That's terrifying. We are hesitant to do this and not and do not wish to use names. This is a very small town and we do not want anyone thinking anything poorly of so-and-so, my neighbor. You don't just have things like this happen here. Um, so that is, that's, that's scary. <laughs> Even just the idea of like strange noises outside of your window. Um, I recently had an incident where, <coughs> excuse me, in the fall, um, I live on a ground floor and I was 
my husband and I were woken by what it sounded like um, someone trying to break into our window and just the noises of what sounded clearly like a body against a like an elbow against an arm and kind of like moving uh, along a building and then trying to find a window that was open and of course uh, my husband shot up and shot outside and then I shot up to open the blinds and we didn't neither of us saw anything so then we so then after going back to bed the next day we were kind of freaked out and then of course I was out walking my dog um because we were like oh well I was like oh is that paranormal (laughs) paranormal and then of course the next morning I was walking my dog out to the tree in front of our place and uh there was a Canadian goose dead right under my window so I think he flew unfortunately flew into the glass and um had been dying and its big wings huge wings were just like trying to pick itself up I think and he was trying to move around um so it was so sad but the idea of not knowing what a noise is outside your window was pretty terrifying um so on all of those creepy notes um of course as always I want to mention uh when I remember it to talk about the websites I got my information from um first firstly I got uh my two of Two, three of the stories from Adirondack Ghosts 1 and Adirondack Ghosts 2, the books by Linda Lee Mackin, and then um, ghostsofamerica.com and youtube.com, like I mentioned, specifically, um, what was his name? Nick Crowley, C-R-O-W-L-E-Y, and it's the Indian Lake Project Mystery. So definitely worth, if you liked hearing the audio of that, absolutely go watch it. It's worth it. Um, and then the next one is ufodigest.com, um, ufohunters.com, which is ufohunters.com is the, it's ufo-hunters.com is the place where you can look up. Um, and it's, it's just fun to like pinch out and explore in all these crazy places. Um, so I make it go into a black hole doing that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, new fork and ufork.org and, um, and that is it. So on that note, I'll take another sip for my delicious UFO passion fruit. And I'll tell you all to have a great week. And as always, happy haunting.